Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jen. I'm Ginny, and we are the Art History Babes. Yay! <laughs> and we are here with Margie Kreiner from the Red Arrow Gallery. Hello. Hello. Also, today we are being sponsored by the lovely Louis Jadot Winery. Delicious wine. Go drink some. <laughs> if you are unfamiliar with us, we are the Art History Babes podcast. I am local here in Chicago. Everyone else came in from California to join me in talking with, with artists this weekend here at SOFO. We're very excited to be here. Basically, we're just going to have a conversation talking about your work and, and what it is to be an artist here. And then at the end, we're going to open it up to questions for about 15 minutes for us, for the artists, whatever. So if you have something you'd like to talk about particularly, be thinking about those things. But we should get started. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? I live in Chicago. I build miniatures inside abstract sculpture that you peek into. My exteriors are mostly built out of wood and wool. Sometimes I use other materials. Currently, a hornet's nest has been my Ooh. my material of choice that I've been peeling for years and using like veneer. And then the miniatures are narratives based around stories from my childhood, dreams I've had, lessons I've learned growing up. A lot of those lessons were learned on family vacations where we pack in a station wagon with a trailer in tow, four kids, my aunt and my parents, who are clearly insane for doing this, <laughs> and then leave Detroit and then maybe go to Alberta, Canada on our way to Sacramento and then through <laughs> Texas to get back in two weeks. Wow. We did it twice a year. So a lot of my work is rooted in what I learned along the way. I love that you mentioned family vacations as being these formative moments in your life. Something about being away from your home base with your family makes everyone act crazy. And you just kind of, it sticks with you. I have a lot of those memories. What's your, not favorite, but the most impactful that you can share with us about that is focused on or reflected in your work? Uh, well... There was, well, let me talk about a piece that's in the Red Arrow Gallery down the hall at A45. It's called Far From Home, and it has three different narratives within it. And it, the piece is about how that phrase, far from home, can mean something different to a person at different times of their life or different to each of us. And within those narratives... I've included the time where we drove to Alberta, Canada in July in shorts and short sleeve shirts, and it snowed a blizzard. Oh, no. And <laughs> unprepared. Oh, no. So that's included in that piece. On another trip, we were somewhere out west. I have no idea what state we were in, and there was a suspension bridge a pedestrian suspension bridge that under current liability protocol today would, there's no way my parents could have taken me on that, <laughs> that bridge. It was swaying, it was rickety, and I was terrified, and I think I was about six. And my dad said, don't worry, just go hand over hand and hold the rope. 
and we were over a ravine or moving, fast moving river. And I did, I went hand over hand across and then back. And then eventually I was running back and forth across the bridge. And it was like a moment where I realized that my fear didn't have to stop me. So that's in that piece. Wow. I'm glad you're alive. (laughs) (laughs) I made it. I remember looking down at the slats and seeing the water through the cracks and thinking, I could die. Maybe if I run fast, I'll get to the other end fast enough. <laughs> I also feel like that's so telling of like becoming an artist like as your profession because there's, I know, a lot of fear involved in trying to make a life for yourself in right. this world. And this doing world. it anyway. Yeah, and doing it anyway. So I, I just, I really like that anecdote as like a, a metaphor almost yes. of like realizing like, you know, this is scary, but I can do it. And then... Yeah. And then it informed your work in that way. Is there a reason, like, what drew you to working in miniatures? Ah, I always was drawn to little things. I didn't like dollhouses, but I liked small little things. And I'd play with small little animals, and I would collect them and build little dioramas. And... I remember in second grade, I built a diorama that went in the school library with everybody else's diorama, and some kid came and stole my animals out of it. (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) Uh, It broke my heart. I went home. I was like, Mom, someone stole my dog and my alligator. And my mom said, they needed it more than you did. And I went, okay. (laughs) That's a really good lesson to learn. That was my first diorama. (laughs) So do you like or love Polly Pockets? Mm, uh, I'm older than you. Oh, no. (laughs) So I hate them. Oh, all right. Well... (laughs) There was a doll that we played with that you put your, your fingers in the tights. Does anybody... Anybody over 50 that remembers this doll? No? Okay. That sounds fun. Moving along. (laughs) I'm wondering, too, if you could tell us about, because your work is so interesting in that you have these exterior, very kind of abstract, almost architectural, sculptural vessels that hold these miniature narrative scenes. Like, what is your process when you're making one of these? Like, what's kind of your starting point? Uh, Usually it starts with one component, and I'm working on the interior, generally. And then I build around that interior. That doesn't always go that way, but it usually does. Mm -hmm. And then I want the exterior to relate to the interior. Right. It could be abstractly in my own tiny mind or very literally at least to me (laughs) but I'm generally working on 10 miniature interiors at the same time Mm -hmm. and they're all not planned out I start with one element and build and so I try to work intuitively right and then once that gets to a reasonable point where I know it's working and it's doing something Mm -hmm. interesting or what I consider is interesting, then I start to build around it. And that's interesting too, because I know that you, a lot of your scenes have elements of kind of 1960s modernism and a little bit of sci-fi and some of the exteriors have that kind of mid-century modern architectural Mm -hmm. element so that the two really speak together in a fun way. 
that and I it's, appreciate. It's my a lot. childhood. So yeah. I was born in, yeah. in 1968. So right. our house was was that yeah de- decorated in 1960s furniture, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. watched all the shows my parents were watching. Yep. Whether whether it was the Twilight Zone or oh yeah Bob Newhart or something, and so I was I've always been drawn to those things, and also the way color was used in the 70s in toys there's a different way color was when you look at a toy and you're from a different age group you can tell when that toy was built because of the material that it involves Mm -hmm. and the color of it Mm -hmm. that speaks to me totally yeah i i mean I think they're going back to your your Polly Pocket comment. I think oh. <laughs> no, I just I think there for us there's like a '90s aesthetic with toys that like feels it just feels like a different time. So yeah, yeah I imagine it's a very similar thing. Yes. Sorry. Also, they were a major choking hazard, and they don't make toys like that anymore <laughs> yes. because they were this Liability. big. Like but this. we survived. <laughs> we all made it. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about just kind of like your journey as an artist and how you you came to be here, maybe the different mediums you've worked in over the years, that kind of thing? Uh, Okay. Well, I've always built things. I always played with wood, not formally. I would just like sneak into my dad's wood shop and make little toys, like little walkie-talkie that didn't work. That made me sad because I wish it works. And uh, I still have this little tiny slot machine that you'd move the nail. I made it for my dad for his birthday when I think I was like seven. And uh, and then I was always building with Lego and my relatives were telling me, you're going to be an architect. And I was like, okay, what's an architect? So I was always drawn to shapes and building, three-dimensional and I was always drawing and doing illustrations and fast forwarding to college. I studied textile design and it was a science degree. So I was learning three-dimensional, two-dimensional design, but I was also learning like how to make plastic and environmental science. It was a mixed bag, I think, because Michigan State didn't know where to put us. So they kind of put us everywhere because now that same degree is an art degree. So... After college, I mostly did graphic design, which I had to teach myself because when I was in college, we didn't have Illustrator. I was all CAD-based. So I taught myself how to use Illustrator and did design for years and years and years. And I had a design company and started to hate it because I, well, it wasn't tactile. And I would hit send on a project and it would disappear and all the joy like, woo. <laughs> oh, no. And, and then I started working with wood and going back to the textiles. So it's almost like you went back to where you had started as a kid and what was really natural, the wood, yes. the dioramas. And then yeah, did... it's like I avoided it for years and then finally I feel like went, that's common. And then, yeah, you can't fight it. It comes yeah. back in. Yes. Did the wool come in when you kind of learned the textiles? Yes. And like, okay. Because, yes. yeah, when you were talking about the wood shop with your dad, I was like, okay, that makes sense. You, like, it's a nostalgic. The wool came later. It. The wool yeah. came from, I started a functional art company that was belts and bags and wallets for men and women. It was sort of a utilitarian look to the work. I was making buckles that went with the belts 
I was making miniatures that were magnets. So everything functioned as something, whether it was a houseware or wearable or eventually the miniatures grew and then I was adding like little drawers to them so they were still functional and then it became totally impractical. <laughs> I stopped doing all of that and <laughs> made something absolutely impractical. I really liked how you mentioned that when you were studying textiles, the school didn't know where to put you because we had kind of a similar thing at our graduate program where we were in a building that also had the textiles department, but then they weirdly also had labs and it was, um, there was a science aspect to the building. So they just kind of threw everybody in that building that they didn't know where to put. So it was art history, textiles, and like a coffee lab. Uh, strangely enough, although, you know, UC Davis science school. So I think they just said, well, we'll just put art history in there. But on that subject of not really knowing where you fit, do you encounter that in your practice as being a miniatures sort of based artist? I think that at the time, all I could think of is why do I have to learn this? And as I work every single day, I draw on something I learned in this random class they forced me to take that I wish I paid better attention in. But I, I draw on that all the time. And thank God I didn't, they didn't know where to put us because I never would have learned this weird thing that I absolutely have to have in my repertoire now. Can you tell us about the process of working that small? Because when I was looking in some of those dioramas, I mean, it's amazing and beautiful and I love the scenes, but then I also am just like, how, like painting those records, I, it's just I did not incredible. paint those records. Oh. I printed those records. Oh. So I went and researched what so that specific year is 1968, that record store, and it was the year, the year I was born, and I wanted to see what music was on the racks when I was being born. And then within that process, I, wanted, I learned how divisive our country was at the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy was assassinated and race riots and Apollo orbited the moon. All those things were happening in 1968, and I was fascinated by the fact that those, those musicians could sit next to each other on a shelf and coexist, and we couldn't get along as a country. That's Anyway, I jumped off the, the no, subject. No, of, that's great. So I did not paint those records. I, print, I took those images into Photoshop and pumped them up and then mounted them and, and painted the sides so they looked the right scale on the sides as the front so they look really believable and then alphabetized them obsessively in the <laughs> tiny little... That is what it did. That's amazing. Do you have a lot of magnifying glasses? Yes. <laughs> Great question. I do. Also, in the work, I'm using lenses that reduce some of the size. So they're not quite as small as you think they are. So that I can work larger, but still cram enough information into yes. the space. Some of them don't have lenses and it's just glass, but some do. Yeah. It depends on what I'm trying to accomplish. Interesting. How has your journey been going into the gallery sphere? And I think so often when people think about, you know, art that's marketable and sellable, it's like, oh, it's something you, you hang on the wall, whether it's a painting or a photograph. Mm -hmm. And I feel like 
the market for finding clients who like love and buy your work has maybe been an interesting journey of discovery. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, an example, I have work at the Red Air Gallery down here at 845. And I found that gallery there in Nashville. I found mm-hmm. that gallery because I had seen a painter that I related to. And the painter is Dana Oldfather, and I don't paint like her, although I paint sometimes. I don't paint like her, but I get her. She mm-hmm. does organic, so it has an organic approach, but also includes hard edge and geometry in the yeah. work. And it speaks to me, and I get it. And I thought, where does she show? Because mm-hmm. if I get her, maybe they'll get me. Yes. And so I wrote a proposal. <laughs> to that gallery Mm -hmm. and she it worked nice and i've been represented by that gallery for years now yeah i and that's why i'm at sofa love that approach like it's just it's so simple but it's it's very logical it's not traditional yeah Yeah, it's very logical find a vibe that you like connect with and like things kind of work out so i I do think practically even though i'm making (laughs) (laughs) non-practical side. <laughs> I think that's kind of one of the big contradictions of like being an artist and working in art is like artists it's a, a creative mindset. It's kind of out there, but to to be able to actually make it as an artist, you do have to be practical because you have to figure out ways to sell your work. But I think to... you also have to be creative. Like exactly. you can't just be practical. Yes. yes you yes, have to totally. think outside the box mm-hmm. to because there's no rule book yeah, for yeah. art. And there's a lot of like who you know or who you met and mm-hmm. where you live and who your audience is or who someone thinks your audience is. And there's so many unknowns that you have to be creative there too. Yeah, definitely. I know because you also live in Chicago. I was mm-hmm. just, I keep thinking about Institute of Art and the miniatures that yeah. they have. And I just like, I want to know. I didn't know about them. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I was making this work and someone said, you must love the Thorn Rooms. I was like, what's the Thorn Rooms? <laughs> I can't believe I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And so I went and went, how did I not know this was here? <laughs> I mean, I'd been to the Art Institute a thousand times and I never went downstairs. Yeah, that it, well, I, I feel like why. that's common. I've I've talked to a lot of people about that museum and I'm like, oh I love the like miniatures downstairs they're and they're amazing. like, What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we all missed that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I've been several times since. And the California room's my favorite. The nineteen yeah, sixties yeah. oh, yeah. California living room with the nice velvet curtains <laughs> is the best. <laughs> I could stare at it for hours. True. Have you been we have haven't. You been to- I have not. We need to. <laughs> They're amazing. Time's yeah, we have away. a very jam-packed weekend, but if we get any time, I would we'll love go. to see some miniatures. I love little stuff, and I'm really happy to be talking to you about little stuff. And I just was wondering if you had any ideas about why you think people love little stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're accurate for everybody, but I think... It makes us, like as kids, it makes us feel bigger mm-hmm. when, we're, when we are that little. Mm-hmm. And I think that lends itself to some kind of feeling of bigger than what we, what we are. Like when you're little, you really want to be big. Yes. So that brings you there real quick. For me, I do it because I can cram more of a story in a small space. Mm-hmm. It's not just that I love little things. It's that I can tell a story in a tiny little amount of floor space but cram tons of information into that story 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. Yeah, I think that's yeah. is there any, universally appealing. <laughs> is there any connection to, because, like, we also, like, everyone gets excited about, like, baby shoes and, like, little things in stores. Is there any, like... Is there any cuteness factor in it for you? <laughs> there, there was when I first started doing the functional work. Mm-hmm. There was something kind of cute. I don't like adorable, but I I I like. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just went to a miniature show that I didn't even know existed, and I saw it on Instagram that there was in, like in Schaumburg. It was an hour away. There was a miniature show, and it was happening as I saw <laughs> that it was happening. And I jumped in the car. I was like, I have an hour. I'll go. <laughs> this place was insane. And they, I bought a tiny little bottle of Windex. Aww. That's like an inch tall. <laughs> and what, I don't know what I'll do with it. I just had to but have, you have that. you have it. And that's what matters. <laughs> and that's, that's it. I don't I think I'll put it same. in anything. I just happened to need, yeah. need it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had an hour and people were like, oh, no, lady, you need three days to be here. People, it was like a like roller wow. derby of... Older people making dollhouses for their grandchildren. Oh, or yeah, there was a lot of mid-century furniture in mm-hmm. a slightly larger scale. Yeah, But it was a, it was a private club. It was oh, a, thousands of people fighting for that <laughs> thing. <That's, laughs> Is there an intersection with like the like model train community? Yes. And okay. Yes. That, that yes. tracks. Yeah, that makes yes. sense. Uh, <laughs> Train pun. <laughs> pun. Train pun. <laughs> Are you still making functional art too? So you're making no. these amazing narrative sculpture interactive things, but are you also doing work that's tangential to that or is it just that's your only if it's yeah. something I have to build for my next tool I bought. Fair. Mm. Like it might be a table for my studio to put that tool on. And speaking of interaction, how does that play into like how you decide to create your work? Because they are very interactive. You can't kind of just walk up and look at it. You got to get down. You got to like get in there. Mm -hmm. You have to, some of them are really reflective. I don't know how much that is kind of intentional per piece or just happens, but the reflection can be really cool to like see yourself suddenly. (laughs) If you, do you mean like in the back of a sculpture? Because some of them you think there's, not more than a reflection, and then you lean closer. And yeah, more behind yeah, it. yeah. I like the idea of jamming something tiny and then making it look vaster with mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's a simple trick. We all know how a mirror works, sort of. I like that trick. I like a mirror trick. I like making it seem bigger, and then I also like the viewer seeing, thinking it's an intimate moment. And then seeing the movement of their own eye in the mirror and then like <gasps> thinking someone else is there, but it's really still you. There's something that like takes you out of your space and then back in. I like that. I like that. Is there any, because when it comes to art and art shows, a lot of people can be, I guess, maybe apprehensive about fully engaging with work. Like you're not supposed to touch artwork mm-hmm. and, and you're not necessarily supposed to get this close to artwork, right. you know? So do you have any issues with like people coming by your work and, and you having to kind of like be like, but look closer, you know, like getting them uh, to engage. The light helps because it's, we're all like moths. Mm-hmm. They're like light. <laughs> and then I don't mind if people touch my work, which I shouldn't say on a microphone. <laughs> 
everyone's rushing to your booth right now. <laughs> Everyone just gets up yeah, and leaves. I, I don't mind if people touch my work and it's gentle. I did have an incident a few weeks ago at a gal at a art center in Boulder where a little kid was short and he pulled on the shelf to get in there and look and the shelf came off the wall and the piece shattered and the gallery wrote me and said with our heaviest hearts (laughs) and i was like it's fine life happens i'll fix it i'll use what you have left just send it back i just imagine being that person at the gallery i'm sure they were to write you the email who is (laughs) like wants to jump off a cliff (laughs) oh my gosh it's that's, Life happens. There are right. bigger problems in the world than... Well, we read your artist statement and the whole aspect of curiosity and that miniatures lend themselves so well mm-hmm. to that. And so I was interested in, is there any other aspect of your process that is influenced by curiosity or do you think the miniatures just... Well, hiding it in a in an abstract hiding sculpture, it. uh-huh. so it's a secret. And then there's something about that I learned this after watching and talking to people who were experiencing the work. I thought I know that my past, my memories, my dreams are in the work, and that's what I'm building. But I want to leave it open for other people to put insert their own lives into the work. But I didn't know that people looking in the work wouldn't feel like a voyeur. I thought they would, but they put themselves in and they don't feel like a voyeur. And that fascinates me because that didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. So is that something that you wanted? I wanted, but I didn't, I didn't expect it and even intend it. I did want it to be open but I still thought because it's you're looking in on something that you might feel like you're a voyeur. Yeah. Right. There's that a very the, clear gaze. Like yeah. you are gazing into something. So yeah, that is definitely an element. So it's a little strange that people go, oh, that's me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's my, I'm in there. Like they right. go inside it rather than stay outside it. it. They go in further than they're allowed to physically. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that the peephole aspect really lends itself to a voyeuristic action. But then I think that because I, I, I feel like maybe this isn't true of everybody, but I think that voyeurism is associated with being kind of like a pervert like naughty. and a little it's naughty. Not. And I don't feel like I'm getting a naughty vibe <laughs> from a lot of these works, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like with those works, a lot of time you're like, Oh, there's, I have to look in it. And you kind of feel a little apprehensive. And then you go look in it and you're like, oh, it's so cute. (laughs) I've had people like, oh, I'm supposed to look in it? Is something going to punch me in the eye? (laughs) They're a little. And then it's just this, yeah, it's this environment. And like, it it does. Because it's an environment. And I think because maybe it's so, you know, sculpted on a, a particular time and place. It just, it feels like you're being welcomed into a room almost which might be part of why it Maybe. the the voyeur aspect kind of disappears because you're like oh I'm 
I'm walking into this space now. Right. Yeah, and you have, I mean, because some of the scenes are so, you know, like people waiting for the train. I'm like, yes, I could be one of them. I am <laughs> one of them. And then there's another one That's of... Bart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. And then there's other scenes that are like a man in a hazmat suit and like some radioactive lab. And I weirdly feel connected to him too. <laughs> It's, That's this piece Even the here. Minotaur. I was like, oh, oh yes. I like the bull man. Yeah. We just connect to all of it. <laughs> the context there is funny if you don't know. What is, what is it? Can we know? I can tell you the context. So this piece that's hanging on this wall, this there's one of my pieces over here, and there's hazmat suit men in a bar. And it's rooted in this bar I used to go to in Chicago that was on Southport and Grace by the Music Box Theater. And the bar is not there anymore. But my friends and I would go there because it was never crowded. It was cheap. It was comfortable. You could play pool for free. And it seemed like something happened there that wasn't... <laughs> And maybe not sinister, but something uh, dark something. happened yeah. and yeah. no one was talking about it. Hmm. So that's rooted in not knowing, you know that there's something there. Yeah. Yes. So that's what that is oh. about. And then the one with the, the Minotaur. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's called Leaving Plato's Cave. And Plato's Cave is sure. the allegory where people were chained to the inside of a cave and there was a fire behind them and they were only seeing the shadows on the wall. So they could only have enough information to view life by shadows on the wall. And it, that piece is about being freed from that perspective mm-hmm. and having uh, the full perspective. Mm-hmm. So the Minotaur is not meant to harm you. Yeah, He's there stepping out. Yeah. He's and just then, living his life. And then there's a, a car and a trailer, which is representative of my family vacations, which yes. is where everything kind of opened up for me. Yes. Okay. I'm a little bit disappointed that you didn't see a Minotaur on your vacation, but I'm very grateful for that explanation. All right. I think we're, we're kind of running down on time. Is there anything specific you'd like to say about your work before we move to Q&A? Uh, no. No? Okay. <laughs> great. Great. Um... All right, so you guys, do you have any questions for anyone up here about art or life or <laughs> anything at all? <laughs> We'd be happy to answer them. Ask us anything. Ah, <laughs> uh, come on, guys. <laughs> I will say one thing that I think curiosity is the cornerstone for getting along mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm improving a situation for enjoying something you might not be familiar with for personal growth, teaching yourself something new. And what I want to do with my art is to just tweak that little curiosity in all of us. We're born with it as a baby. You want to touch that. You want to grab that. And your parents are like, no, 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 no. And I think our, that societal, through socialization, we're taught to, at times, to ignore that curiosity mm-hmm. and simmer it down and yeah. hide it and tuck it mm-hmm. away and ignore yeah. it forever. So I'm just trying to give an opportunity to people to just open that door a little bit. 
I, yeah, I love that. I think we have a, a similar ethos with what we do. We, we want to bring our love for art to people in a way that makes them curious about the world. Yes. And yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about, really. That's what all of this is about, is mm-hmm. exploring curiosity and creating new things out of that. Yeah, so in a way, that small child who took your work down was really doing what you wanted (laughs) him to do. Yes. So that's amazing. Oddly, I wanted, I had wanted that piece back early. Uh Uh-huh. Because I wanted to to rework something that I wasn't really satisfied with on the inside. And I was like, I wish I could just get that back early enough that I could... Yeah, <laughs> and I did, and I didn't even have to break it open myself. Right to quote to quote our our dear Bob Ross, mm. "What a happy accident! Happy accident! Oh, I that's think lovely. that life has is full of them." <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much thank for being so here much. with Thanks us. Thanks for having this me. Was great. Thank credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.